Hello and welcome to Healthicon on the Go. This is a new podcast where we'll be discussing everything health economics and health related. So we'll have a monthly episode where we go over the literature published a month before and maybe something else or something more and also discuss some more pop culture uh, health econ or public health related uh, topics such as any new episode on Netflix that discuss anything uh, public health related, new books or podcasts to find the fun and the more relatable content um, in the overall culture. And then we'll have less frequent episode where we'll do a deep dive in any health subject, for example, mental health economics, and getting the, the view, the opinion, and the comments from experts from the academic sector, the private sector, so pharmaceutical or consulting, and um, the public sector. So in order to get a really deep dive and a full understanding of the issue with different point of view. And yeah, so welcome and let's get started. First, because this is the first episode of this new podcast, I'll present myself. I'm Mathilde van Kelligam. I'm a medical doctor. I graduated in Mexico. And then I had a lot of questions about why the system works as it does. Why do we get some drugs here that we don't get in other countries? And because we were in Mexico, it was usually, why don't we have those drugs? Why don't we have those treatment? And why do the patients in uh, private sectors sometimes tend to have better outcomes um, than the one public sector and so on. So this touched me to do a master in public health, uh, the health policy planning and financing uh, master in LSSGM, London School of Hygiene Tropical Medicine, and the London School of Economics. But after the, afterward, I started working as a consultant in health economics. And in my last job, my <laughs> line manager told me, Mathilde, you should keep more up-to-date with the literature. So here I am, trying to keep more up-to-date in the literature um, and bringing you with me in this adventure. I'm also, I've been craving some deep dive in some health uh, issues and I noticed that we get different point of view. It, we, we face the same issue when we work in consulting or in the pharmaceutical academics and the public sector, but we have different um Goals. So we, I really want to have those people sitting in the same table and having, well, in the same call in this uh, in this case, and discussing the same issue, so we can understand an issue with different point of view. So this is the goal of the podcast and why I'm doing it. I hope you get to learn a bit, help help you keep up with the literature, and have a bit of fun also. So. Let's get started. This is our first episode. We are in January 2024, so Happy New Year to everyone. And because it's the start of the new year, let's look at um, iSpore, uh, top trend uh, trends for top 10 trends in HUR in health, economic, and outcome research. For anyone that's not, uh, that doesn't know about iSpore, iSpore is a professional society for health, economics, and outcome research. Um, it's an international organization, a non-profit organization, and it's yeah, recognized globally as an authority on HER. And they have lots of guidelines on how to do some things. They do a very important conference, uh, usually in, I think, in November. 
and so on. So it's pretty important in the world of health economics. So how do they create the top 10 trends? That was my first question when looking at this report. First, they had a topic exploration uh, where um, some people, I SPR, it's not mentioned who, went through uh, all uh, the papers and everything that's been discussed in the scientific journal, the research, the blogs, and the different con uh, conference. From that, they had a very long list of topics, which was reviewed by the, um, and the ISPOR Health Science Policy Council. And from there, they created a shorter list. This shorter list was presented uh, to a lot of the members of ISPOR, which gave their opinion. They voted on the most important um, topics. And finally, based on all the votes and inputs on the subtopics, the same committee um, finally decided on which are the top trends. It's important to know that this committee is not only uh, people in uh, one country, but it's a really international group of um, members. So, okay, we've talked quite enough, so let's start. Uh, we have the first top trend, and the number one is real-world evidence. So um, it's a way of getting the data um, that can present a more realistic uh, view of the patient and health outcomes. It really goes into what's happening right now. It's not, um, yeah, it's not a controlled trial. And it's been quite useful for different reasons. Some of them can talk later, for example, in the accelerated uh, approval of drugs. It can be used afterward to really check if the drug is really useful or in other conditions. Sometimes the, um, yeah, if we have issue with a rare disease and, and so on. So FDA, the FDA, the NICE and uh, the European Medical um, the EMA and the Canada Drugs and Health Technology Agency have a release guidance on the use. So it's something that's really growing and growing and growing. Um, even when you look for a job, you find quite a few job openings talking about the real world evidence. The second uh, trend is the drug pricing, pricing sorry, which uh, is continued global healthcare issue and very important in cancer, which has one of the highest price, prices. And... Uh, Apart from the paying for the workers in healthcare, drugs are one of the most expensive things. So there have been a lot of discussion on how to decrease, decrease the price of drugs. In the US, we have the Inflation Reduction Act, IRA. And so the Medicare can st program can start entering negotiation of the, the price of the 10 most expensive uh, high expenditure drugs. And I think they'll be doing uh, 10 drugs up until 2013. The European Union uh, is also launching uh, an initiative, the Joint Clinic and Assessment, to evaluate oncology therapy. And as they go on, they will increase uh, the type of therapy and drugs they'll they look at. So, and, and with all the initiative, there is quite a lot of talks and a bit from also the, <laughs> the pharmaceutical side and the lobbying group from the pharmaceutical um, research and manufacturing of America. The, the, which is a drug industry lobbying group, they say, okay, if you pay less, we'll get less uh, money for research and development. And so we'll get less new drugs into the market. Uh, this issue will come into also one of the other uh, trends we'll discuss a bit later on. So the third one, and I think um, unless you live under, uh, under a stone, you haven't 
you have heard of it. So it's AI, artificial intelligence, and we have been yeah discovering ChatGPT, I think, uh, and last year. So it's been quite a bit revolutionary for everyone. Uh, lots of companies also are wondering how do we integrate it to our work. Um, so it's the same. The same is happening in the medical world. Like we have this technology available, it can be helpful. How do we use it? Or um, so. Icepore did identify five methodologic areas where the machine machine learning could enhance ATR. Uh, One of the, those are cohortative ident- selection, sorry, identification and of independent predictors and covariates, predictive analytics of health outcomes, casual interference, and the development of economic model. So it can be really useful for the health economic and how we analyze the data, how we build the model, how we do the probabilistic sensitivity analysis. Um, but uh, talking with experts during conference, um, it seems that experts would prefer that artificial intelligence is used in more uh, assistive way rather than autonomous, so that it helps us, but it doesn't replace us, which... Yeah, I do personally quite agree with that vision. Uh, in some reason, it could be autonomous, but it's a full long conversation to also have, and I think we'll be having over over the years that coming. So the fourth trend um, is fostering innovation. So we discuss a bit of that uh, with the fact that they want to decrease the price of drugs and how it can have an impact on research development. But um, but this issue is a, it's a new trend it's, it hasn't been in the other top 10 trends the previous year and yeah the question how do we balance affordable pricing but incentive for innovation so a big victim in this issue will be the drug the yeah the search for uh, antibiotics because there is not a lot of um, financial incentive for it, but we know it's quite a big issue and it's growing and growing and growing. So how do we incentive? How do we make it? Uh, because an issue, if we have a new antibiotic, we won't be using it as a first line. So it's a new drug that needs to be accepted and almost barely used. Um, then new drugs, I think one of key examples will be gen therapy are quite expensive. Uh, for the treatment of hemophilia B, a new treatment was accepted and it's 3.5 million US dollar. Uh, so that's quite expensive. Uh, personally, don't have that money. Um, so yeah, how do we pay for the innovation, keep the innovation? Because we know research is expensive. So yeah, one of the key issues that we'll be discussing along uh, in this podcast also. So the fifth one is health equity. What is health equity? Uh, the WHO, the World Health Organization, defined it as the absence of unfair, avoidable, or remediable <laughs> uh, differences among groups of people and highlight that the health equity is achieved when everyone can attain their full potential for health and well-being. So in health economics, there are quite a... There have been discussion on health equity. It's not something new. But um, how do we apply them um, to the cost-effectiveness analysis? There are quite a few uh, new methods that have been uh, discussed and presented. But yeah, how do we integrate them? Or can we um, make them more useful? I think there is quite a lot of conversation also. Quality or is kind of discriminated? Uh, 
the use of qualia that can discriminate uh, chronic disease and so on, end-of-life treatments. So it's an ongoing conversation and real also conversation of how is equity measured? Um, very interesting, quite complicated. Uh, look forward to all the papers, discussion we can have about that. So the sixth one is accelerated drugs approval, which we discussed touched on uh, in the um, uh, real-world evidence, which was the top one. So um, the pressure is mostly coming from significant unmet need in rare disease. So that's why there is a lot of, please, we need this accelerated drugs approval because it's really hard to do um, uh, a trials. We don't have a lot of patients. Well, we cannot approve the, those uh, drugs with the same amount of data we have for the drugs. No? So one of the examples that can be used is a uh, thing that can be used for those accelerated drugs approval is surrogate marker. So it's not the endpoint like surviving, but it will be uh, what we see in the blood of the patient. The issue is that sometimes those surrogate markers are not necessarily translated into good long-term outcomes. So we need, we would in theory need that, okay, we accept that drug and afterward we need to prove that it's really useful. But I think uh, National Public Radio, NPR, in 2020, uh, 2022 reported that uh, 42% of currently outstanding confirmatory studies for those accelerated drugs approval either took more than a year to, being follow, to begin following the accelerated approval or had not started. Um, and of those 19 required, required study had not started three years after the approval. And even four of them had not started more than 10 years. So we can see that there is um, a bit of, yeah, we need that evidence, but it's not always provided. So are we accepting drugs and without having at the end the, the real evidence we need for it? So um, loads of questions and how to do it. So the seventh is the value measurement. Um, so assessing the value and the Quality alternative, or do we value health? Um, as we discussed before, quality is a really commonly used measure used in healthcare, and it assesses the length and the quality of life. But it undervalues the quality of life for people with chronic disease, with disabilities, and older people, people at the end of their life. Um, and for example, the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act, which we discussed in the medicine pricing explicitly prohibits the use of quality because it does um, undervaluate uh, the yeah, people with um, chronic condition and disabilities. So it says that cannot be used. So what shall we use? Um, to yeah, grow that uh, value measurement, iSport, for example, um, proposed a value floor, which include Things such as equity, scientific spillover, um, family spillover, value of knowing, the value of hope, and so on. So, but how do we really include them in uh, with the measurement? Uh, it's quite an, uh, an a question. So, there are also other uh, way to measure that have been proposed, such as online personal utility function, OPUF, which is an online survey, the F League, which has been proposed by the ICER. Uh, which is the Institute of Clinical and Economic Review, and so on. So um, there is a lot of discussion on it. I think it'll keep on for quite a few years. Um, 
And yeah, we'll, we'll see what's come up. Um, we will dethrone the qualis. And then we have on the eighth place, uh, patient centricity. How do we put patient in the center of research and everything we're doing? Because at the end, we're doing it for the patient and for the society. So they should be centric and have their opinion and they say on. And uh, But clinical research is still being conducted without patient engagement. Because of the information asymmetry, patients don't always know as much as the healthcare provider or the drug providers or the drug manufacturer. It can be hard to have those conversations. So there are some initiatives. to improve health outcomes through the contribution of patient and patient representatives. So they also help the patient learn about what are the, um, what is as health economy, the health technology assessment, what, what those all those very complicated uh, subjects in health uh, mean. How do we, and so we can engage the patient more. So the FDA also developed a, a series of four methodological patient-focused drug development guidance documents. And we have in Latin America the LAPA, which is Latin America Patient Academy. And it seeks to build, seeks to build the capacity of patient organization leader through um, learning. So there are different... Uh, movement created and different but oh does it work has it has it been working and so on we need to keep an eye on it um then we have on the ninth a place the precision medicine which is a trend in new therapies um precision medicine is based on a biomedical or biological model and so it's really yeah biological things then we have also the individual medicine and which is based on uh with, sorry the personalized medicine which is based on bio psychosocial model so it integrates biological psychological and social dimension so precision medicine is only the biological uh dimension and then personalized medicine will englobe uh more dimension of yeah, of the patient. And in 2022, the FDA approved 12 personalized medicines, so around 34% of newly approved uh, therapeutic molecular entities. And for uh, the, the last eight years, personalized medicine have accounted for at least a quarter of the new drugs. So it's quite prevalent. It's important. I think it'll keep on growing. And oncology is one of the main areas. Finally, at the end of the list, we have public health, which is quite key. We are facing important issues. So we have climate change, uh, we have economic recessions, social unrest, and all those have impact on health. It's seen that um, climate health will also affect more marginalized position, uh, population. It's growing the rate of co-epidemics, emerging new diseases, in, the spread of infectious disease, so a lot of things. And that can also be associated with a social unrest and economic recession or so on. So there is a lot and public health is, we need the, yeah, the multidisciplinary approach to, yeah, to face those big challenges and those emerging health threats. So as well as the chronic issue, because it's not like 
when in the middle of the war, you don't stop having diabetes. You don't stop having all those other diseases. So in COVID, loads of people still had cancer, diabetes, asthma, and they still needed the treatment. So we have to face loads of different type of uh, issues. So yeah, quite interesting, really important. And very, although it's at the end of the top 10 list, I think it's quite a crucial one. Um, okay, well, uh, no, that we went over the, um, the top 10 trend by iSpore for the 2024-2025 years. Um, let's go over, let's say, the more the way will we more commonly do the research of papers. So for the, the month before, I uh, have a, a search term that I do on PubMed and then look at the papers and select. In this case, I only selected two papers, but I will be selecting usually three papers and go quickly over them. Uh, I want to talk about would did it, what are the conflict of interest, why is it important, and a bit of the background. So we get a bit of uh, feel like you read the paper and you can have something to say on that area um, if someone asks. And we also get to learn a bit from the different aspects because health economics is not only cost-effectiveness models, it's quite big. It involucrates a lot. Um, yeah, in, in health, in public health, nothing is just living in this own, on its own. It's, everything comes hand to hand and it's working together. So we can just not isolate health economics and it in its own world. So our first paper for this uh, new year and new podcast is um, health expenditure. How much is spent on health and care worker remuneration? An analysis of 33 low- and middle-income African countries. So just before we start, uh, clearly, why 33 countries of the 47 countries? Because there were no data for the rest of the country. Um, they used, in this paper, the data from all the countries they could find. Um, so it represents 75% of the population and 70% of the African countries. Just quickly going over, the authors did not disclose any uh, conflict of interest and all the authors work mainly at the WHO and different type of office. The funding came from the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, Gavi, and other non-profit organization. So why do they look at this question? Why is it important? So the health and care workers are key to achieve um, uh, universal coverage uh, and health equity, which are the um, uh, in the health uh, the sustainable development goal. So healthcare, health and care workers, remuneration alongside pharmaceutical is one of the major uh, components of country expenditure. Is what the most expensive side of a healthcare system to say otherwise, um, to say differently. Sorry, and. It is expected that there will be um, a shortage of workers in the healthcare sector, and it's mainly being concentrated in Africa based on the project. And so how did they do their work? Um, it's a, They use country-produced data from 2019, just before the pandemic, 
And they use the data for the health and care workers, only for current workers, salaried or independent. And they included the training, any benefit and allowance. So, for example, if they get housing and a car, they did translate those into monetary value. And everything is in US dollar 2019. They did not include any training, uh, doctors in training that are not currently working. So, some government do pay for the training of those uh, future healthcare workers that is not included in this case. Uh, what are the parameters of interest is the share of country health um, uh, sorry my health expenditure allocated to the health and care worker reanimation so how much money is spent on paying them? What are the main funding sources? Uh, how much government health expenditure went to the remuneration of those workers and where do the government efforts stand in country uh, comparison. So in the result, we have um, data for 16 low-income countries and 17 uh, middle-income countries. Um, data on the subregional economic group is also given, but I decided not to deep dive and on those because it's it becomes a lot of information i think in this case it's a podcast um if you want more information please read the paper really interesting and there are some important uh, interesting comparison in those economic groups um the per capita health expenditure in those 33 countries an average was 109 us dollar and the remuneration uh, per capita for the health and care worker was 38 US dollar. The lowest was found in Burundi with three US dollar, um, and the highest in South Africa with 295 US dollar. So the remuneration of a health and care worker accounts for an average of 28% of the country health spending, with market very marked difference between uh, countries. It varies from one-fourth to one-third of total health expenditure in the, um, six, um, the 16 low-income countries and 17 uh, middle-income countries, respectively. So we have yeah, already different between low-income country and uh, middle-income country. Different also noted in those sub-regional economic groups, but as I said before, I will not uh, discuss those at the moment. In uh, most cases, well, usually the government is the biggest contributor to the health and care worker remuneration, and in average, it contributes to 60% of the health and care remuneration. External aid to 17 and private source to 23%. For the middle-income country, the government usually found 17, as in average, sorry, 17 uh, 1% with external aid less than 10% and private source 21%. For low-income uh, countries, we see a decrease in the government percentage. So it's 49% come from the um, government, and here the external aid kind of take over, funding 27%, uh, and the private source 24%. So the health and care worker represent an average 55% of the government spending. So before we discuss, because when I read the paper, I had to do a post there, um, where do the source come to pay for those healthcare worker? And now looking at only the source from the government, what percentage of all the healthcare widget does the government allocate to, um, to the health and care workers? 
So in an average, it's 55% of the budget. And it was quite um, similar for both low and middle income countries. The main difference was found in sub-regional economic growth. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the key result from this paper. So the discussion part, the result, the highlight the importance of government funding. So it's it's in all the cases, the main contributor to the renumeration of health and care worker. And we can see that low-income countries are relying more on external funding, even more, are greater risk for the payment um, and for maintaining the health and care workforce because we have seen a decrease in the external funding aid. So we need to keep a strong eye, an eye there. And limitation of the city, we don't have data from all the countries. So did that missing data create some bias? And we they didn't accept, uh, accept they didn't access um, the extent to which the expenditure is divided between medical doctor, nurse, uh, schemes such as paper performance, and so on. We don't have that granular data. So that's it for this paper. If you have any more questions, please send me an email. I can also send you the paper or you can uh, find it online. It's um, it's free. All the, paper, uh, all the papers I'm using are free for access um, because I don't have currently any subscription to any, um, any journal. Okay, so now we'll touch on our second and last paper for this podcast of today. It's a um, discussive framework for the fair pricing of medicine. It's uh, been funded by the university, a Canadian... Um, yeah, I need to get you back on that. I forgot to note that. Um, but yeah, it's funded by, I think, a university. And why is it important? Because to discuss a fair pricing for the for medicine, well, it is, uh, and as we discussed, it is one of the top trends for uh, this new year um, because high cost drug put pressure on the public healthcare budget. But what is a fair price? If you ask the public sector, it's like the cheapest, no? And if you ask the drug manufacturer, it's like, Giving you money, loads. I've worked so much on this. I, I deserve some. It's fair for me to get a high price. So, fairness kind of change where you're sitting. Um, and as I say, uh, in a more academic way, the concept of fair is inherently normative. So, we need cost of medicine needs to be low enough that the healthcare system can pay for it, and high enough that the pharmaceutical company want to sell it. So, we need to maximize the welfare uh, when pricing. And we are sorry, we can maximize welfare when the pricing, uh, we price a medicine collectively. So we'll see afterward that in this framework, they propose that pricing medicine in, um, in a group will uh, achieve a max better welfare. So more fairness uh, and more benefit for the public sector and the drug manufacturer than if uh, we do drugs by drugs. Because we have some asymmetriness of information we don't know as a public sector. What does what did it cost to the drug manufacturer? How much what is the lowest price? And we also not sure as a society um, some key concepts such as if we spend that amount of money on this drug, how much are we losing on other areas? How much is it uh, impacting 
impacting negatively uh, other kind of patient, other health areas. So there is a lot of questions uh, around it. So the framework is, ba- uh, is built upon the economic concept of consumer and producer surplus arising from the reimbursement of medicine and how different price impact the distribution of total welfare between patients, the consumer, and the factor, the producers. So the framework includes health opportunity cost, which is experienced by patients whose healthcare receive less funding. So if we're buying loads of drugs for and putting loads of money on cancer research, maybe we'll have less money to put into uh, diabetes. So the people with diabetes won't get access to the new uh, insulin molecule. So those are the kind of balance if we put because healthcare budgets are limited. There is no infinite money. We all wish we had, but we don't. Nobody has. Um, and then the willingness to pay. How much is the the public sector willing to spend on something? That's where we sometimes have the quality that come in and those um, discussion. And then the cost of developing and producing the drug. And the, vol- the willingness also to sell from the um, manufacturer. So um, the total welfare we discussed before, you know, to, ma- to maximize it, is the total consumer surplus and the producer surplus. The consumer surplus is the benefits obtained by the consumer, the consumers or the public sector paying less than the willingness to pay. And the producer surplus is benefit obtained by the producer, so the manufacturer, the drug the people that, that produce the drug and selling above, above their willingness to, to accept the price. So it's all, we'll find this fairness and the fair price in between those two lines, no? Between it, the price need to le- be a bit less than the willingness to pay for the patient. For, if it's higher than that willingness to pay, the consumer won't be buying it, no? But if it's lower than the producer surplus, and the, um, sorry, than the willingness to accept a price, it won't be, the company won't be selling its drugs. So we need to find already, we have no two limits on those, um, on those, and the price. Then we have, uh, the concept is also based on microeconomic. In a perfectly competitive market, there is an equilibrium price with both consumer and producer surplus. In a monopoly, the producer surplus is maximized as is the only one having this drug, it can sell at the price he wants uh, because we know that if we don't pay that, we don't get it. Um, quite interesting. And in this framework, we assume medicine are priced independently. Um, so we don't say that uh, it's not a group price. Equity measures are not used in the basic framework. So I won't deep dive into all the, ex- the extent of this framework because it's quite complicated. And I think without looking at the graph and so on, um, might become really complicated. Just I want to get out the big ideas of this framework out and give you maybe the interest of going back to it. And but yeah, in the extended framework, they do discuss how to add equity measure. And uh, another assumption is health measure is measured with commonly accepted, measured, and discount. Um, so at quality, and is discounted to a present value. So. Um, Okay, what they do, and we have like 
there is for each medicine we have a health gain. So because uh, which we know from the cost effectiveness, like oh, I put fifteen thousand and uh, I get this new medicine. The patient takes this new medicine and against uh, those quality. No, sorry, not the, pa- the patient, the society. So we get, we earn those quality. But then we have in this concept also the health loss because that money was inverted somewhere. We get a loss in other areas. So there is in this case like the, the value K, um, which they say uh, by that amount of money spent, we lose that amount of quality. So that's not a value that healthcare system have it's been uh, estimated by different works uh, empirical work so it's not a value like you can find just like that it's a value that's been estimated discussed between academics and there is also uncertainty around the incremental cost of the medicine and the supply side threshold we don't know uh, because manufacturer for good reason are not sa- saying how much it costs um to create it and so on. Uh, so we have quite a lot of uncertainty around the supply uh, supply curve limits. Um, we don't know what are the limits. We don't know how low they can go and what's the minimum. So um, that makes the conversation quite complicated. We also know that uh, if they don't get enough money, they, they won't go into, as we discussed in the top trend, um, the research and development. So all those concepts are a bit further discussed into the the extension of uh, the framework. And it's really interesting uh, to get to get into it. Um, okay. So just going to for this model, what are the key points? Uh, they say that for decision maker makers, it's a framework is proposed that allow for the consideration of a free price for medicine. And at any f- any fair price, a medicine is dynamically calculated uh, incremental cost effectiveness ratio. So the ICER lies below the supply side estimate of health opportunity cost. So um, it's we're not losing health in general in the system. So we're not uh, spending so much money to cure. Um, sorry. I'm going back to it. So if the drugs cost, um, let's uh, let uh, help us save 10 quali, say, let's say, okay? And we say this drug is sold at uh, $10,000 $10, or euros. Um, if we say that for every $10,000 uh, or euros spent, we lose 20 qualies, well, we'll end up with negative qualies in the general population. We incremented in 10 qualies for the that health area. area. So for those patients, for example, this case is a cancer drug. We incremented in the incremented in this cancer drug population 10 qualies in the overall population because uh, we put the money there. We couldn't fund it um, other drugs that would have imaginary drug, we don't know in this case which one, uh, that would have helped increase 20 quality in the rest of population. So we really need to find a price that's um, under that that value so that um, to maximize the population in the health. 
So we also need to make sure that yeah, population and the patient get a fair share of their economic surplus. Uh, so that so that all the economic surplus doesn't go to the um, the manufacturers. So what did, we don't pay and our willingness to pay uh, value, but we pay a bit under. So we do get a bit of surplus and which is a bit different than what you, we usually do uh, in health economics uh, models, even more when as a consultant you work for a pharmaceutical company, you try to to say, oh, how can we sell this medicine so that we achieve we just on or just under or very close to the willingness to pay threshold, uh, which is quite interesting, interested, interesting in this area. So we understand in that case that both... Uh, side have their own goals, their own aim. And so how do we have that negotiation? Because neither know everything about the other one. There is also at the end of this paper, some comment on how to do the negotiation and uh, some negotiation framework that exists. exists. So if you're into that, uh, please look at it. Uh, if you're going to read the paper and you're not uh, very a strong mathematical economist, uh, take your time. Uh, have a coffee next to you, a bit of silence of some music that helps you concentrate because it's heavy. It's long, but really interesting. And um, open the door. As I say, further research is needed. It's not one and done. It's to keep on on this conversation because it's really important the way we price medicine. And what I found key in this case is not for the healthcare system, for the public sector, not paying at the willingness to pay threshold, that they should be paying a bit under it. Um, so yeah, a conversation, an ongoing one. Please look at the paper. I'm happy to send it over if you send me an email. Um, yeah, so, okay, we concluded our uh, this part of the podcast. And on the bit of the cultural notes, I think... One of the, um, I've been seeing, well, I read the um, Empire of Pain book, which is on how the opioid came around and all the epidemics surrounding Then We have the opioid and to say a lot of patients go into heroin, no, it's fentanyl. And very interesting. We understand. And uh, Netflix have been, uh, did a show on it. I think it's called Painkillers. Then we have on uh, Disney, we have Dope Sick. Quite interesting, easier to see, although really painful for emotion-wise, um, to see. And we also then understand like the they were differentiating their opioid in the market now, so creating kind of a, a monopoly for them. They were the only opioid that were uh, without uh, any addiction. So. We all know it's false. Uh, it was uh, long-term, which is false, like the drug make effect. We didn't need a lot of drug because opioid have a short term, um, they act in a short term. So we need to take it quite a lot in a day. And in their case, they were saying, oh no, every eight hours, which wasn't the case. And it's one of the reasons it became so also addictive for a lot of people because they were going to the up and down of the drug all the time. Um, yeah, so they're going through it. Empire of Pain also quite interesting because you get um, really on the art sector or did they help on uh, exposing this issue? Um, also, that Sackler family uh, created the first of the use research uh, to do some commercial work or we use research to sell um, also. 
doe de pub, publies, uh, pub, ja, so the commercial side of uh, the health and how they were involved in that. But the Netflix and uh, the Disney show, which I didn't finish, um, easier to read than a very big book. And also going to the story and the family and how they and why they went into that. So, um, and why did we, well, uh, it was quite important in the US, how did that uh, take advantage of the economic system and so on, how it works. There are other books also looking at why we have drugs issues with the financial system we are living in. Um, I'm still reading it, so as soon as I finish, I'll give you a note on this, but yeah. So you can find health economics on Netflix, on uh, Disney Channel or Disney Plus and so on. Yeah, so that's it for our first episode of Health Tech on, on the Go. So I went with the motto for this podcast, finish, not perfect. Please, please, please leave me any comments, any feedback uh, on health econ on the go altogether, arabasgmail.com. And also, if you want to participate, I would love to have um, invitees and co-hosts uh, to discuss some of the paper, uh, the cultural notes of, or anything that you think might be important. Uh, Lou love to have loads of different voice in this podcast. Uh, so please, and if you just want, you don't want to look for those papers, drop me a line. I'll send you the PDF. Um, and happy to have discuss anything. Um, well, have a lovely uh, start to your year and see you soon. Bye.